Today's episode is sponsored by Femex. We'll hear more about them later in the show. Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. So my first guest, first podcast, welcome everyone. This is Bully Esquire. I'm here with a friend of mine, longtime trading friend, Ledger Status. Ledger, thanks for joining us. Hey, Bully. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, to kick off the show with you. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, no, we, we've known each other a long time and, you know, we've, we've been in plenty of kind of trading groups together and taken our lumps over the years on a fair share of <laughs> cryptocurrencies. But yeah, you were uh, one of the earliest folks I followed on uh, crypto Twitter and uh, we definitely gained some scars together, haven't we? <laughs> we sure have. Um, yeah, no, it's been a, it's been a wild ride. I think, you know, I created my Twitter account, I think in April of 17 and I was talking to someone the other day and I was like, man, it feels like it's been about 30 years. <laughs> it's it's uh, great, man. This, this space moves so fast. Uh, and it's like these life cycles happen so frequently that, you know, you think about three years or more in the space and it certainly feels like a lot longer than that. Yeah, man. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, well, thanks again for joining me. And, um, I, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on and in addition to just sort of the broad cryptocurrency stuff, um, obviously DeFi or decentralized finance has become a big topic in the crypto world. Um, and a lot of people might not know the first thing about it. And some folks listening might have advanced knowledge of the DeFi space and Uniswap and all the good platforms and coins that go along with it. So um, for the latter group, maybe bear with us a little bit. I wanted to do sort of just a quick intro on um, the real basics of, of that stuff. And, you know, Ledger's a great teacher, so hopefully he can jump in and give us a update there. But even before we get to that, Ledger, like you said, you've been in the space over three years now. So maybe you could just give us a little background on how you got into it and sort of what your view on it is. Yeah, um, I'll be pretty quick for, you know, folks that don't care as much about these types of stories, because it sounds a lot like, uh, I'd say a majority of the space now, because, you know, most people enter in whatever the last hype cycle was, right? So I actually heard about Bitcoin forever ago. Uh, I actually, I had to look back through like my normie Twitter account to see like what was my first ever mention of Bitcoin. And it was making a comment about how Bitcoin uh, was on Hacker News back in 2012. And if you look at the exact date, uh, Bitcoin was like seven bucks. <laughs> so uh, I, I didn't think about Bitcoin as like an investment vehicle back then. No, I just thought it was like internet money and didn't think of it from trading in the sense that you would like Forex or, you know, any capacity as the store of value so much as just a medium of exchange, not even that I would assign it that way. Despite having already at that point, I, I was an active trader from eighth grade 
so in 2012, I don't know, <laughs> I was, you know, out of college and in, in, in my career already. So I have an understanding of markets have always been an active, you know, amateur trader, um, you know, of my own savings and whatnot, but didn't think about Bitcoin that way. Um, so, however, sorry, sorry to cut you off. I'm just curious, what were you trading before you sort of got into Bitcoin? Was it just stocks and bonds and things? Yeah, not really even bonds. It was, um, you know, my, my dad introduced me to this stuff because he, I think he got a late start to him and my mom, you know, really saving for retirement and stuff. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to teach me about markets. And I think he gave me like 800 or a thousand dollars when I was an eighth grader. And he said, I could do whatever I want with it as long as it was invested. And I would put money from side jobs and summer jobs and all that kind of stuff. And I would trade markets like individual swing trades, much like I do now. And, <laughs> you know, I, re I specifically remember, like, I remember the Google IPO and thinking $88 a share for Google was ridiculous for a company that didn't make anything. And, you know, uh, I put together these little technical trading frameworks where I would combine like some fundamental analysis. Like if anybody's heard of Zach's research, like mm -hmm. I would say, I want it to be, you know, some approved by something like that. Like it's a Zach's number one or number two stock and it needs to be over $5 a share and a, a price to sales ratio of a certain amount. And I wanted to, and I was I, back then I looked for like Bollinger band squeezes, which is funny for technical traders today. You know, Bollinger bands were a thing back then. You look at it on Yahoo and I knew that that meant volatility was coming. So I wouldn't have even called it technical analysis back then. I was just seeking volatility seeking opportunity and swing trades and, you know, the stock market tends to go up. So even like a young kid could, you know, <laughs> act like they're a, a real trader and figure things out. I did okay. Like I didn't have many losing trades cause um, the market was pretty healthy at the time. And uh, I, I learned a lot and I actually got lucky and needed to use a lot of those funds that I'd saved up over the years between my, uh, final year in college and buying my now wife an engagement ring. And I was finishing college, um, in late 2007, early 2008, and basically sold the top of the market. <laughs> uh, and through the, through the recession, everything was crap. And by the time I was building up 401ks as a early young professional, you know, the market was bottomed out. So I really avoided a lot of that. However, the experience of what a big bear market and recession what it feels like has stuck with me ever since. Um, so that was kind of where I was coming from, from a trading perspective, but I, I was an engineering student and then um, kind of worked my way into the web industry actually. So where I got interested to in crypto from the, uh, you know, from the technical perspective was as a web professional deep in the open source software space, uh, specifically with WordPress, um, which is an open source platform for content management. Most of your websites are built in it. Sure. And I'd seen a lot of the cycles of like what open source development looks like, what network effects look like, like what makes someone use something. And um, even still, Bitcoin wasn't really like on my mind until I heard about Ethereum and Ethereum... I heard about it because of the rampage that Ethereum went on back when it broke out from 10 or 11 bucks up sure. to like a hundred or something. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't use the terminology then, but I aped into Ethereum at like, <laughs> like $120, something extremely high. I knew it was sure. high. I knew like, this is not going to last, uh, but it was enough to get my toes wet. And I played Ethereum up to like 400 bucks. I was texting a buddy of mine. I was like, I got to get out of this, man. I just two extra <laughs> money, like three days or whatever. And uh, that was plenty of 
um, you know, crypto cocaine to get you into the ecosystem and, and never look back. Sure. Yeah. And then it, it ripped to what, 1400? Yeah. Well, it didn't do anything for months and months, but by that point I was already interested in all the other stuff. So right. uh, I was a genius for like 10 seconds, uh, <laughs> you know, early Ethereum, but I missed like wave one of alt season where a lot of people were doing stuff. I was just kind of still onboarding, figuring out the ecosystem, learning about the stuff that was on Coinbase, uh, you know, between Ethereum, Litecoin, Bitcoin, getting my initial buys in. I mean, those panic dumps down to like 1800 Bitcoin with the forks and some of those stuff, I was like gobbling them up, you know, I'm mm-hmm. like, I got to get more fiat into the ecosystem. Um, and then, yeah, I, I experienced my first like huge run up in alts in that December, 2017, January, 2018, after learning some tough lessons about how uh, King Bitcoin can really knock those Bitcoin relative ratios down on altcoins and, uh, so learned a ton, you know, got earned my stripes through that period, made out fine, like not super get rich type of well, but well enough. Um, and, and learned a lot of lessons and then just have been grinding for years, waiting for another, uh, real opportunity that for the first time, I think we're experiencing here in 2020. I think this is the first thing that even comes close to comparing to what we saw in 2017. Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff's madness right now. I mean, between like, Wi-Fi and uh, meme and like some of the more recent run-ups on some of these DeFi stuff. I mean, yeah, I saw uh, the free airdrop for meme. Oh, it's like a million bucks, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, like three quarters <laughs> of a million dollars. Missed out on that, Jesus. but I never would have held that. That's, right. And that's what you learn with a lot of this stuff. It's like, oh, these people, it was so easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, you have to hold through life-changing run-ups in order to capture the full value. And most people don't do that. You almost have to be insane to hold that long. Yeah. No. And I mean, especially a lot of us from 2017, I mean, I, I went through the same thing you did where, you know, I, I think in 2017, early 18, some of the paper valuations of these altcoins were insane. And my accountant was looking at me like, what what is is this? What are you doing? And I, I was like, oh no, it'll go another leg. And then, you know, most of the stuff died and, you just don't want that to happen again. So I think a lot of us are quicker to dump now than we were in 17. And that's probably affecting the market to some extent too. Oh yeah. I think, you know, the, the actual pure retail traders have not truly reentered the market. I mean, they can, there's plenty of degeneracy to be had in legacy markets. Why do you need to be in crypto? Um, so it's still mostly, I think, relatively sophisticated retail traders. I don't know what you call that. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, taking money from one another uh, currently. And, right. you know, sometimes you get huge run-ups, but not always. And I think a lot of times the big run-ups occur when there's a really decent fundamental justification for an emerging technology. And, you know, like Link is a great example. Outperformed throughout the bear market. And it turns out, that what they provide and all those data feeds and oracles and stuff is pivotal to the way liquidity pools work in the mm-hmm. DeFi uh, ecosystem. So, you know, there's, you got to have an edge and you got to stay on top of it. I've seen plenty of people that I was friends with back in the day and they just like got stuck in the mentality of playing the same coins and those coins weren't moving while some of this stuff has done really, really well. And they didn't even realize it was occurring. Um, so you got to stay up on it, which makes it, opportunistic for someone paying attention and very challenging for someone that thinks they are paying attention, but 
you know, isn't really on the ball. Right. Yeah. No. And I've noticed that too. I've sort of had to evolve and develop new skills and figure out, you know, these new systems like Uniswap is its own animal. And like, I guess we're just trading without charts now, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, you definitely have to kind of get outside your comfort zone on a lot of this stuff and try new things. Otherwise you're going to get smoked. Yeah. The first thing I did was try to figure out like, all right, I got to figure out how I can chart this stuff because I'm not trading without a chart. Like when I first, (laughs) you were like showing linking me to Dex tools and stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this is a one minute thing of, you know, a handful of candles. This is not market historical information. This isn't useful to me. I'm a, I'm a technical trader. Like I need the chart. Uh, so I went hunting and found the charts. And what I found out was that the charts were because not many people were using them. They were beautifully technical. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, a, a chart is just a visual representation of human psychology that occurs in trading. Like when you, when you panic and when you have euphoria and you know, when you FOMO and all that stuff plays out in what you see in a chart between the consolidation and the breakout or the breakdown or whatever. And I found that the charts were really my edge in the first month or so of doing this stuff and had some nice wins because I think I was charting these tokens while other people were just like looking at Dex tools and seeing the size of a buy come through. And then they were, you know, going in and um, it's been fascinating to, to see how, how it is evolving very quickly. Yeah, no, I mean, it, I, I do remember that like a month ago, you could, it was very hard to find even a chart. I think, Chartax or another website, you had to have like some coins to be able to access the charts, but there's a few now that have popped up. What do you, what do you normally use? Yeah. So actually the one that I'm using, they just came out with a beta, but depending on when you're listening to this, it's dex.vision or beta.dex.vision. It was uniswap.vision, but what they've done now is you can look at any pair, which is kind of the promise of Chartax.pro. Uh, but Chartex is slow as crap. And, mm-hmm. and this Dex vision I've found is a responsive team and good charts. So that's what I'm using to chart any of this stuff that doesn't have a centralized exchange listing. Um, and you get a fuller history based on whenever it first occurred on, on Uniswap. So that's what I'm, uh, that's what I'm using to chart these things. And it's, it's really useful. Right on. Well, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe now is a good chance to sort of step back um, and discuss what is DeFi like? What is what are we even really talking about with DEXs and Uniswap and all this stuff? So um, maybe just give us like a brief overview of what DeFi is. What it, I mean, what it means to somebody who might not know much about the space and sort of how that's impacting the legacy crypto space. Sure, I mean decentralized finance is what DeFi actually stands for. What different projects are trying to do, though, is take things that are um, occurring in whether it's crypto markets or traditional, you know, legacy financial markets, uh, take common things like lending funds and borrowing funds and taking part in trading and pulling those onto a a non-custodial blockchain-based ecosystem and trying to figure out like, how do we cut out some of these central parties who are in control, whether that be a bank or a centralized exchange, you know, in crypto, the centralized exchanges and the, and the custodians are our versions of banks. And that's not ideal either, right? That's a weak point in the, in the whole system. So whether it's uh, DYDX and others that are trying to enable margin trading on chain, I took a margin trade on chain today on DYDX. 
I mean, it's nasty, but it works, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and it's moving that stuff into a completely non-custodial uh, format and you can borrow money. Um, it, it's still not as good. It's not partial collateralization borrowing. Like I can go to my local bank and say, Hey, I need a million dollars to start a business. They can review my business plan and then uh, they can choose whether or not to give me that million dollars or some other amount. And then they say, okay, well, what do you have as collateral, pal? And I say, well, I have this house over here. Well, my house is worth $250,000. Well, I'm only collateralizing that loan by a quarter of its value. DeFi hasn't really figured that out yet. What DeFi is doing is you say, okay, well, I'm going to go lend 100 Ethereum and I'm going to borrow in a similar, you know, maybe 70% of that value but I'm going to borrow it in USDC. So it's a fully collateralized loan and they're just trying to establish the rails for what this stuff can be and what it can replace in the primary ecosystem. And, and you get to the trading side, so like Uniswap and some of the others, that's actually the most novel because that just doesn't exist in legacy. Like mm -hmm. these are infinite wells of supply on either side rather than using an order book. And I've got videos on YouTube that describes that, but um, this is where things get interesting because people are like, well, how do we enable trading on this stuff? And um, it was, it was a creation that someone came up with to say, well, what if you pool liquidity, meaning uh, you have $10,000 worth of Ethereum on one side and $10,000 of USDC on the other side, and when someone comes in, they choose to buy or sell. It just pulls from the well, either well. And then there's an automated market maker in the middle. So this automated market maker is just code that's running the protocol rather than, you know, a centralized market maker, like a market participant who helps manage order books. This automated market maker is saying, well, I got to keep a, you know, balance between these two. So it's establishing the price of the asset and that pool and that price is completely independent of all other pools, that same asset on a centralized exchange. So your arbitrage folks are the, who come in and do the rest of that process. So that established a way to create liquidity in a de decentralized trading uh, format that kind of worked. Now it's mm -hmm. not perfect, but the people that are providing that, that liquidity, now they kind of get the benefits of being a market maker. They're getting the fees that occur inside that protocol to make those trades and some of that stuff. So it's creating these new market participants, these new ways of uh, doing something with your holdings. Like imagine, for instance, if this was on a centralized, you know, a legacy format, let's say I have a hundred shares of Apple and I also have whatever that's worth, you know, $400,000 or something. Of, uh, of, of cash and I can put both of those in a liquidity pool and then people trading in and out of Apple or cash are going through that pool and I'm earning uh, what ends up kind of being like a dividend, an extra dividend on top of my holdings of Apple. So it's a way of earning a little extra income. So what happens if somebody in, in your Apple example, what happens if somebody comes in with a hundred Apple shares they want to sell and drains the entire pool? Yeah, that's where the, uh, nastiness of impermanent loss comes in because similar to is this, I mean, this does happen in legacy markets when someone goes in and they just hammer an order book on one mm -hmm. exchange and you end up with a big wick because quickly people come in to arbitrage that because it's a different price in one exchange or one platform than it is on another. Um, the difference is 
that the person in that pool, it got wrecked, to be honest. Um, over time, this should, this should balance itself out. And that's why they call it impermanent loss. But what they're trying to do is trying to incentivize why someone wouldn't want to do that. Like the person dumping the, all those shares of Apple, they should, I mean, they're not getting an efficient price for their shares of Apple. Right. A lot like, of slippage there. There's a ton of slippage. They're not getting efficient price. They could have done that elsewhere. So what is their, why do they do that? Well, in legacy, that doesn't make very much sense because these are, you know, regulated securities and it doesn't make sense to do that. Like any of those mm -hmm. holders has better ways to, to get rid of it. Um, in crypto, well, you could be in a pool, but it's a completely unregulated token made by who knows who, uh, with no regulatory, you know, uh, body to, to try to manage that. And it's actually the developers of the token who are doing it. And they're just doing it because they know their tokens are worthless and they're stealing all the Ethereum or all the stable coins or whatever that are on the other side of that pool. So that's where this risk comes in. And that's actually been termed a rug pool because, mm -hmm. you know, they're maybe they're minting a whole bunch of other tokens. Maybe they dump the team allocation, something like that. They realize that one of the two tokens in the pool is worthless. So they dump as many of them as they can to get, to capture as much of the other side of the pool as they can. So, so you noted, you noted in the middle, there's this sort of, well, what used to be a centralized exchange is now a decentralized, I guess, automated order book or some yeah. sort of mechanism. Is that, is that typically done through a smart contract or is that, I guess that's like what Uniswap is, right? Yeah. Uniswap is purely a protocol. You're interacting with a smart contract when you use Uniswap. If you go to, you know, the Uniswap exchange at, what is it, app.uniswap.org, you are just, uh, you're interacting with an interface that that interface is the protocol itself. So that's what makes it truly decentralized is it's just code. So if you like arrest everyone on the Uniswap team and like send them off, well, anyone can deploy that code on any interface and the show goes on. Mm -hmm. So it's properly decentralized. Unlike if there's no, you know, uh, alternative access to that code base. And that's actually really a fascinating component of it all. Um, mm -hmm. and it yeah. all, there's so much complicated stuff in this because there's like, how is this governed? How do you make changes to it? And all, it, all this stuff that we're seeing evolve in how it, how it operates. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, yeah, all sorts of interesting concepts are implicated back to this kind of uniswap not being able to shut down issue i find that really fascinating so if if a if a regulator comes in and they're like uniswap is allowing unregistered securities to be bought and sold by retail investors we think we should shut it down they go and i guess they could potentially seize the domain or something but you're saying that well they just create a mirror domain or some sort of other domain where users could access this protocol, this smart contract that's being run on a variety of different machines. And then there's no real centralized point of failure in that case. Yes. That's pretty much exactly what would happen is uh, hmm. the code would be, you know, accessible through some other interface. I mean, really it already is. Mm -hmm. uh, there are alternative uh, access points to Uniswap than just going to app.uniswap.org. In fact, when Uniswap released their own token, the Uni token, it was so overloaded their own servers that <laughs> a lot of people 
interacted with it and claimed those early uni tokens through the alternative portals, you know, like just some random URL where someone was running, running the code and uh, you could go access, access and claim your tokens that way. So uh, this is going to be an absolute nightmare for regulators. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, no, it really uh, like it does what cryptocurrency did for money to the concept of exchanges, which is crazy, but it's fun to watch and, Develop in the very in real same time. way, in the very same way that you know, if someone says, "Oh, well, Bitcoin is illegal," and mm-hmm. everyone else says, "Okay," <laughs> you know, good right. luck. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a very similar concept now. And previously, I think it was pretty difficult for that to be the case when all you have is centralized exchanges. Um, in this scenario, like there, there's really nothing they can do to shut it down. So I think we'll see. And this is much more your territory, bully. But we'll we'll see like regulators kind of grapple with what can they do? Um, what can they request from companies in the space? Like, you know, for instance, access to the website and maybe that's where we start seeing, you know, the crackdown occurs. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if this Uniswap, the team behind Uniswap, if any of them are in regulated areas, I'm certain they are. Um, well, maybe they need to request certain credentials or whatever before someone can connect a wallet to the website. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, I, I remember back in 2017 during the ICO heyday, it's like the SEC kept publishing uh, guidance to the effect of, well, we think these exchanges ought to be registered and, you know, basically warning exchanges that they were next. Um, but you never really saw a crackdown on that. And I always sort of viewed exchanges as sort of the centralized point of failure. Um, yep. So it's really interesting to think about a world where that no longer is the case and the exchanges are just as decentralized as the cryptocurrencies themselves. Um, and, you know, cryptos like, well, Bitcoin in particular, you can't possibly imagine trying to shut that down. And Ethereum is probably getting pretty darn close, although they have a foundation and sort of key leadership and things. But, yeah, I mean, if, if exchanges get to that point, it's hard to imagine regulators even being able to put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. But Yeah, I think there's a chance that, you know, the crypto space has kind of like an Uber type moment because um, Uber just played in the gray zone, right, of all the different places where they tried to uh, operate until it was so powerful that you know you basically get a revolt from your citizenry if you try to just outlaw uber and protect the taxi unions Mm -hmm. we're essentially experiencing the same thing with except for it's interfacing with securities yeah who's to say like who regulates my ability to purchase securities or non-securities whatever but like there's no doubt that i mean Mm -hmm. you're the expert on this but like a lot of this stuff that's being traded on Uniswap and elsewhere surely would be defined as securities. Um, there's just yeah. not much you could do about it. Yeah. I mean, you look at the Howey test and one is like the expectation of profits based on the effort of others. And you're like, oh man, well, if the team's, <laughs> the team's keeping 20% and you know, you're buying this coin, hoping that the team develops this really cool tech in the future, boy, that sounds an awful lot like a security to me. Yeah, so yeah. There's a reason a lot of these uh, founders are, you know, they're holding their hands up like, bro, I don't know. This is uh, not supposed to be worth anything. I can't believe Wi-Fi is worth so much money. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I guess it's sort of like the ripple approach. Like you create this thing that's worth billions and billions of dollars. And then all of a sudden you can hire some attorneys who used to be at the SEC to help you defend the thing. (laughs) I've been giving uh, Coinbase a hard time about this because they 
like they really seem to be in ask for forgiveness mode. Like mm-hmm. they used to have this, uh, what was it? The like token framework thing. Oh, right. Yeah. The framework. Sure. Yeah. It's like, this is the stuff you need to qualify for before we list your token. And it's like, now they're just listing us stuff left, right, and center. And I think it's maybe representative of who they answer to, like what, mm-hmm. the, how, how strong are the regulatory bodies that they are interfacing with and whether their legal team feels that they can, you know, they have some like paper tucked away where it's like, this is our, you know, internal opinion on whether something was a security and that's what we used as our justification. I don't know, but like, yeah, it's like everybody's just kind of in YOLO mode. Yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> We, we, I, I was, I'm friends with a few other crypto lawyers and we were talking about this the other day. It's like, well, you see projects like EOS go out and raise what, $5 billion. And then they get two years later, they settle with the SEC for, I forget how much they ended up paying, but it was peanuts compared to what they raised. Um, And none of them, none of the founders went on the bad actors list. So you're like 24 million. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if, you know, a lot of founders now are like, well, I'm willing to roll the dice. The problem is it's not only the SEC, right? Like the Southern district of New York has nailed some guys who did those fraudulent ICOs in 2017, and they're probably going to serve jail time. Um, moreover, no one really talks about, uh, like FinCEN and, uh, FAFT and sort of, so FinCEN here in the U.S. is a financial crimes enforcement network. And then globally, there's sort of this coalition of countries called FAFT trying to crack down on money laundering and um, things like that in the international banking circles. And this week it was broke about how a lot of banks are, well, allowed some pretty terrible things to happen via their rails um, when some FinCEN documents were leaked. But anyhow, I think that that may have some blowback, which could potentially affect the crypto space. And so my general point is, well, in addition to securities issues, which are clearly implicated here, there's also like money laundering, KYC, um, AML, Banking Secrecy Act stuff that would be implicated that potentially has way sharper teeth um, and goes way deeper than SEC stuff because you know the SEC obviously has a interest in protecting U.S. investors, but FinCEN is trying to stop terrorism, and you know that. Like you said, the teeth. I'm not the lawyer. You know the type of person I'd really love to hear from on this, and I'm sure because of their role, it's difficult. But somebody mm-hmm. like Jake Travinsky is the general counsel at Compound, which is sure. one of the central to DeFi type of companies, and. I can only imagine the type of conversations that somebody like Jake is having internally, like trying to just navigate these waters to figure out, Hey, what can we do? And Mm -hmm. how do we approach all this stuff? And, you know, hopefully we'll get some like memoirs someday. (laughs) (laughs) How did did that happen? Uh, And yeah, I'm I'm with you, man. I don't know how they're going to do. I've heard several reports where people are fearing like some of these decentralized exchanges and stuff are offering essentially, you know, um, massive honeypots for people, uh, you know, trying to cycle money into the system and stuff. But I, I, I don't know the answers. I just know that you, it's hard to keep people out. I don't think mm-hmm. they're going to really uh, do very much in that regard because all you need is an Ethereum wallet to to interf- interface with one of these, like there is nothing else. So they've right. got 
these right. I don't feel for these regulators at all because <laughs> it's got a, they got a tough job. I mean, I think at, at the end of the day, you know, if you have Ethereum, it's just Ethereum. Eventually, if you want to spend it to do illicit things, you probably have to convert it to cash or to some sort of national currency. And those are sort of the on-ramps and off-ramps. And those, in my understanding, are pretty heavily regulated. And we're not seeing really any sort of breakdown. I mean, if you think about it, if you make money on Uniswap, you're probably going, well, I mean, I think a lot of people would probably just send it to Coinbase or to Gemini or one of the other well-regulated entities, convert it to USD, and then send it to their bank account. And all of that is very well documented. So, uh, you know, maybe that's sort of the regulator's approach is, well, as long as it's contained in this crypto ecosystem and we cordon off the endpoints, maybe it's okay. But, you know, then you get things like Monero where folks can send money into the system and then it goes through all sorts of different untraceable channels and comes out. And there's some, you know, money laundering concerns there as well. So yeah, the re- the regulatory piece is really interesting. And I onboarding and offboarding of the yeah. cash is, yeah, it's got to be their only real handcuff where they can um, figure out what's what. Right. Uh, in the meantime, I mean, the way I'm approaching this, and hopefully anyone else is, is, uh, you know, have a record of what transactions you made <laughs> because yeah. if you want to properly report these and not get in trouble, then you basically got to offer as much information as you have to be able to showcase, okay, here's where I made money. <laughs> you know, like right. I did not do anything illegal. I just accessed systems. Um, you know, make them go after someone else. Don't let them go after, don't make it easy to go after you. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think you're right. You want to keep good records for your tax purposes. And then, you know, I'd assume if, I'd assume regulators are going after sort of the project creators and not the folks trading it. That of course there's regulations that apply to trading. You know, you can't do pump and dump schemes and um, influence markets and shady stuff like that. I think about that is you remember back in the, like the CD stealing days and (laughs) for the most part, they went after the sites that were like the download hubs for all that stuff. But then there are a handful of people that just liked music and they had, a hundred thousand songs or whatever on their computer. And they like sent, tried to send them to jail. Like it'd be, it would be terrible if some people were made an example of because they were, you know, participating in the ecosystem, but yeah, anyway, so right. it's just make your trade, just do your thing. Don't do anything. That's just obviously not allowed for you. And then, uh, and keep good records. I've used a lot of exchanges over the years and they all seem to have their problems from a lack of volume to bad buggy UI or the exchange crashing when Bitcoin makes a big move. Until now, that is. Femex is a new derivatives and spot exchange launched last November by a group of former Morgan Stanley execs. Femex sports lightning fast transactions, the ability to handle many transactions at once so you don't need to worry about it crashing during big moves, deep order books and real verified volume. They have several different trading pairs and leverage options. They also have low trading fees and a killer ref plan. Be sure to use this URL for my welcome bonus. Femex, P-H-E-M-E-X dot com slash A slash bully. Again, Femex dot com slash A slash bully. Check it out. Well, uh, so back to this DeFi stuff. So you were saying you, you can provide liquidity to the pool. And by doing that, I understand you, if the pool is what, like USD and a token, you'd submit 50% USD, 50% token, and then whatever trades occur, 
using that pool, you get a cut of, is that how you understand it? Yeah, that's exactly how it works. Uh, you get a cut of that. The hard part is that as one of the assets, whichever one is volatile, more volatile, as they change in price, the mandate of the automated market maker in between that's set, setting the price is it's forcing this kind of 50-50 distribution. Um, and so you end up getting more of one and less of the other. And that could hurt you relative to if you just held the asset outright. Imagine if you're holding a bunch of Ethereum and then the other half of your liquidity pool is USDC or something, you, Ethereum starts going down. Well, people want to give you more Ethereum as it's going down. So you're like getting more and more of the asset as it's going down in price. Um, and you're getting less and less dollars. And obviously mm -hmm. if the price is going down, you would rather preserve your, your buying power and have more dollars in the same amount or less Ethereum. And it's the opposite because you're providing all the liquidity to people panic selling their Ethereum. So you create this impermanent loss that over time should balance out, but it does potentially impact when you may want to enter a pool like that. And, you know, a trader can look at it in a variety of different ways. Why would you provide liquidity? One, the fees could be high enough to where it's worth it. You know, people are doing calculations on, Hey, here's this pool. And without any other incentives, which we'll get into the fees alone on this pool, you could earn 10, 15, 25% a year or something like that because you're, you're the liquidity provider. Well, um, a lot of times that's just not good enough because of the actual impermanent loss that could occur. If you're in a more volatile pool, like one of the tokens say it's not Ethereum and Ethereum is volatile enough, but it's like one of these small cap altcoins. Well, it could go down 80% and you end up with a ton of it and mm -hmm. you had massive impermanent loss. So making 20% in fees just does not cut, cut it for that. Um, and what the, what these pools are doing there, there's essentially liquidity wars occurring because Uniswap's not the only player in town. There's other ones that are participating and trying to get people um, to provide liquidity on them because liquidity is king, whether it's a centralized exchange or decentralized exchange. And the way they're doing that is to reward the people that are providing liquidity on the pools with more than just the fees of the pools themselves. They're essentially airdropping them tokens of reward for the decentralized exchange. So we talked about Uni, uh, mm -hmm. Uniswap launched the Uni token. And now if you provide liquidity on the primary pools like the Ethereum USDC pool and, and others, I think there's four of them to start for Uni, then you are rewarded with Uni because you provided that liquidity. And now that is the governance token so that you not only earn Uni and it has a financial value because it trades itself, but you also have a role in the governance of the ecosystem. So you could vote on things like, hey, we want to increase the fees, you know, or, <laughs> or other things that you may do. And so we're having kind of this renaissance of governance tokens and deciding whether they have value and what value do they have. And that's the extra incentive. And that's, what the t that's essentially what you're doing in any scenario where you're yield farming is you're getting some token for taking part in some other activity. That activity usually is providing liquidity in one of these pools, but sometimes it could be as simple as lending your tokens in an ecosystem so that others can borrow. So Cream Finance is another example that's been pretty popular or Curve or whatever else. Mm -hmm. And the way that side works is you deposit something, whatever they accept, let's say uh, Ethereum, Actually, I'll use an example that I'm actually doing. So this is where you can even stack it, okay? So uh, Wi-Fi or yearn.finance, 
you can deposit Ethereum. So let's say I deposit 100 Ethereum. They will give me 100 Y Ethereum, which is essentially an IOU for my Ethereum, but they're using my Ethereum and they're farming it for me on my behalf. And I'm earning say 30% per year based on them doing stuff with my Ethereum. So normally I just have this Y ETH now, that's that representation. It's like my receipt, sure. except for it's also a token. So cream got popular because they were like, Hey, we'll take your Y <laughs> and we will allow you to lend those out to people. Uh, so I can deposit my Y ETH uh, in their system and earn interest on that. And I earn cream by supplying it because other people will borrow it to go do other things. So the, funny. Part of me is like, Oh, this sounds like banking. And then part of me is like, Oh, this sounds like mortgage backed securities. <laughs> yeah. Or like, yeah. It's, it, it can get pretty nuts because you can essentially let, you know, leverage yourself by stacking this stuff on top of itself. Um, because once, once you provide, you're providing collateral. Now other people can borrow from your Y ETH being in that, in that supply side of cream you also now have a balance that you can borrow from a list of like two dozen tokens on their borrow side. So I can deposit my 100 Y ETH and I can then borrow up to whatever my margin collateral allows me to something else. So if I deposit hundred Y ETH, I might be able to borrow up to say like 75 Ethereum or <laughs> even worse, like some altcoin that has, a, a big variance in its potential price. Um, and then I have to maintain my, my collateral position and all this stuff in all of those scenarios though, cream like others is rewarding me with their cream token for participating in their network because they want to have, they want TVL, the total value locked mm -hmm. into their ecosystem because that is essentially telling the market. If you go to like defipulse.com, there's a rank, list of all these. And it says, Hey, uh, look at this project. It's got a billion dollars of TVL time, you know, uh, total value locked into their various products. So yearn has however much money locked and then cream has however much money locked, but all of it may start with me depositing into yearn, getting Y ETH, going over to cream, depositing my Y ETH into cream, borrowing Ethereum, and then taking that Ethereum and going to say Uniswap and pooling it with something else. And now I'm farming like three or four times, all starting with the same basis of Ethereum. And that is how people are truly in a degenerate fashion yield farming. And you can imagine there are significant potential risks in that. But in some scenarios, for instance, if all of your base layer assets are essentially the same. Notice I mentioned deposit Ethereum, receive Y ETH, deposit Y ETH, receive ETH. I'm not really, uh, so I'm not really at risk of underlying Ethereum price changes other than what my Ethereum is worth. So I'm really not at like risk of being margin called or whatever. I'm just farming all these different things. And now I'm receiving the dividends from yearn, I'm receiving the dividends from cream and I'm receiving the dividends from Uniswap. So I'm triple yield farming with that initial basis of a hundred Ethereum. And that's where we're seeing people earn a whole lot through farming and all that kind of stuff because they're doing that and much more. That's incredible. So you still have your Ethereum, but you're making farming yields from the ones that are technically locked up, even though you still have access. 
That's right. So the way you would uh, undo that, and even when you're pooling, you can pool, for instance, like ETH versus synthetics ETH, like which is just the like S ETH, which is yet another protocol's version <laughs> of ETH. So like you're not even taking a risk in the pooling, but then you're farming for something by providing that pool because synthetics needs people to ha- provide liquidity t- for people to swap ETH versus S ETH, you know? Right. Uh, so you're not really at a huge risk, but you do eventually have to unwind all this stuff. And at some parts of it, you may be paying a little bit as well. So like on the cream side, you did borrow Ethereum. So you're paying, let's say, uh, 10% like APR uh, to do that. But if you add up all the other places where you're farming this stuff, which is the terminology for essentially earning these, uh, you know, reward tokens everywhere, then net, maybe you're earning like 300% or 600% APY. Mm-hmm. Anyone, anyone with any understanding of what you earn if you deposit cash somewhere, well, obviously this is worth the risks that could occur in the protocols themselves. So you are at platform risk, protocol risk, the risk of execution against the code, you know, bugs in the code, hacks, et cetera. That's why you're getting paid so much because you are essentially um, the fodder for these financial experience, uh, mm-hmm. experiments that are occurring, but you are rewarded massively if you understand these systems and you take part in them. Right. So, I mean, if you think about a traditional bank, you have, you put your money in a savings account and you might get 0.1% interest a year on that or something. And then they yeah. turn around and they lend out your money, um, at what, 18% maybe on a credit card or 4% on a mortgage or something. So I guess various fixed income strategies that they use. Yeah. So in this case, I guess like cream or Wi-Fi are are sort of not necessarily acting as a bank, but sort of standing in the middle, allowing you to lend your assets at a much higher interest rate than you would at a bank and borrow assets at actually a lower interest rate than you would at a bank, but then the margin is sort of shared across the network, but not really by the centralized entity. So, yeah, there are some, I mean, they're doing some things that are very expensive and some, in some ways it could be also cheap. Like Mm -hmm. let's take the borrowing example. Well, I can't go to any bank and like say, here's my hundred Ethereum of collateral. Give me a loan. Like no bank will do that. (laughs) So that is a product that is unique to these, you know, crypto protocols because I can, the pure fact that I can use cryptocurrency as collateral to borrow money. And for what it's worth, I may borrow USDT. And then what if I go and send that somewhere and I get literal dollars for them that I then put in the world? Like if you're a crypto whale, you'll pay a significant yearly interest rate if you can use it to pull money out of the ecosystem um, and actually go do something with. So, I mean, there's tons of stuff that you can do in this system. And I used Ethereum as my example. You can de-risk this even more by using nothing but stable coins. So we Mm -hmm. have seen, Bully, I don't know if you saw the recent numbers, but maybe like $10 billion of stable coins being circulated. And I am convinced that this is uh, tech savvy, crypto aware people with real money that are saying this is well worth the risk for whatever, 3%, 5% of our portfolio that we're going to toss over there and earn, you know, yearly interest that we cannot dream of in legacy markets. 
for sure. Even like, I mean, a good hedge fund is what, 7% a year or something. Sure. I bet the guys over at Three Arrows are making like a hundred times that doing oh, yeah. this stuff. I, I, there is uh, enormous wealth being created in all of these experiments because they're all brand new mm. and we're just seeing people explore but what we're seeing as well is i mean these people are hyper degenerate <laughs> because of the hundreds of millions of dollars that some single players are using to participate in all this and of course you know there are dozens of competing protocols we're just using some from our, for our examples here mm -hmm. lots of people are trying to achieve the same thing they have various uh, amounts of success in terms of the economic models they use to deploy all these rewards mechanisms and strategies like we've seen the rise of the food tokens and they oh, just right. have enormously high emissions. So it's like, Oh yeah, come get 20,000% APY. Well, obviously that's not going to work out well with anybody with a brain, but it might work out really well for the first people that dump like a million dollars on there for a day. And you know, mm -hmm. they, they like triple their money in a day because so many people were rushing to it and then they sold those tokens out. So like, I don't know what you call that. <laughs> like, it's like a, a fool's gold rush type mm -hmm. of thing. Uh, it's not lasting, but what we are seeing, if you go from the very serious projects, I would count kind of the Wi-Fi's and the compounds and the, uh, you know, some of those as the serious projects all the way down to the stuff that's completely ridiculous, obvious scams, you know, probably being used to try to pump and dump some other, you know, tangential token or whatever. Um, you, you pull it all together and people are using this experimentation to, I think, essentially build the rails for what could become serious financial products in the future. And that's, yeah. where, that's where the real promise of all this comes from. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I think there's so much noise right now and there's so much like gold rush. Fool's gold rush is a good way to put it. Um, and, you know, dumb money flooding in trying to, you know, double their Ethereum overnight. But I do agree with you that this sort of seems like fintech 2.0. And I think I've tweeted that a few times that like fintech's promise was really what DeFi's trying to do was to decentralize finance and, and cut out the middlemen. And they've done it to some extent, but in a lot of ways, the existing fintech community is really just like banks with better platforms or, yeah, you know, new banks. Like right your square is replacing your Goldman Sachs or whatever. Exactly. Uh, not to say square is a bad company, but you know, the various participants, Robin hood is just the new uh, Charles Schwab or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. like who cares? Uh, right. You're just putting a pretty interface on it. Right. But this, I mean, this is different. And I, I, I tend to agree with you that this is like when visa and MasterCard started up and people were like, wait, what are you doing? Like, this is a completely different model. Yeah, you're using a plastic card to pay for things. <laughs> right. Like, where's the check? Where's, right. the, where's the cash? Right. They're just going to borrow money and it's you'll just, pay it. Yeah. It's just, how are they going to pay this back? <laughs> so I, 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 I agree with you. I think it's really cool. And um, you know, it's a shame to see, I mean, one thing I'm constantly complaining about is, uh, and I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to, is like Bitcoin maximalists. <laughs> they just like try to complain about everything, A, that Ethereum's doing, or B, really that happens at all in the crypto space that's not related to Bitcoin. And I'm seeing a lot of like, 
um, sour grapes type posts from Max Maximalists online saying, well, you know, this is all just one big scam. It's a get rich quick scheme. It's ICOs um, all over again. And I just flat out don't agree with that. I think that like ICOs were a clear cash grab in my opinion, but this seems different. Um, and maybe I'll eat those words. It's my first podcast, so there'll be a record of this, but, um, you know, it's hard to see. Well, I think there's some exciting stuff happening. And if you look deep enough and you drowned out some of the noise and the bullshit that's happening, there's some really incredible technology being built here. Yeah, I agree. And I also, I don't think necessarily maybe a couple of the names that we see today will still be the names that matter tomorrow. Um, but the, the underlying concepts that are being experimented with, I think will carry over and be iterated upon for the serious players. And we'll start to see the yields go down, um, you know, because that's what efficient markets do. They make it mm-hmm. harder and harder to make money over time. So the, the beauty is that, if you are a participant in the gold rush, whether you're the speculator hunting for gold or you're selling the picks and shovels, whatever, all of the, all the normal people will come into the market. Um, but then eventually everything will settle down and it'll be a, a more normal market, but we will see some products evolve out of it that um, I think become really appealing well beyond existing crypto participants. And it'll be appealing to people in traditional markets because for instance, someone with some cash to put on the sidelines, like they're like, wait, what I can earn. What if it's 10% at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, right? I can earn 10% a year instead of paying my bank for a checking account or a, you know, a savings account. Like some people are not getting, they're paying for the privilege of having a savings account, you know, like that's absurd. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you can earn a little yield and and you can participate in an ecosystem or you can borrow money where before it was hard for you to borrow money for whatever reason, add to that the potential if governance ends up working, which is a big debate in its own, like are any of these governance ecosystems actually ever going to work? Well, what if they do? Like what if it becomes there is some voting body based on a decentralized protocol with tokens and people vote on whether or not to lend money in a certain way. And that opens up um, uh, an, a way to issue debt that never existed before. That mm-hmm. type of stuff is awesome to me and really the, a worthy experiment. And even if we have to live through the, you know, the sushis and the <laughs> whatever other the sushis is not even really the worst one, but you know, like I, not to name other food token names um, in order to get to the good stuff, then I want to speculate in the crazy stuff and I want to see where all this goes to, to build the good stuff. Because I think, I think, it, I think we're onto something and you truly could start to disrupt some of the banks. And that's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the governance token, I mean, I'm a corporate lawyer by trade and I advise a lot of companies on corporate formalities and corporate law and governance tokens to me just seem like a real uh, sort of, cumbersome or rough version of what Delaware law has created over decades. So, you know, people I think ultimately are self-interested and will react and vote in a way that protects their interests. So if you can create these models that reflect that and are ultimately for the good of the pool or the project or the user, and you're able to sort of 
decentralized corporate governance, the way that we're seeing decentralized financial systems be developed. Um, there, there's something there. Uh, somebody tweeted this weekend, they're like, well, you know, the governance stuff seems rough now, but the way technology iterates, it's exponential. And so what you're seeing on governance might look clunky now, but in five years, it might have the possibility of at least supplementing or potentially replacing or augmenting corporate law and corporate governance. So what there's if it's a- not just corporate governance. What if it's municipal governance? True. Uh, yeah. You know, like, or who knows what? Like, I, I think governance is a thing. I think it's probably one of the hardest to implement systems of all of crypto's many adventurous goals. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. It's a tough nut to crack, but it's, it's fun to see all of these separate difficult issues sort of move forward at once on a bleeding edge um, and challenge sort of the status quo, but there'll be some pain along the way, I'm sure. Oh man, no doubt about it. And in the meantime, there is opportunity for people that were here for the degenerate side of things. There's opportunity for significant, significant profit. Mm -hmm. And that's not even like, I know people who invest in like anything with a pulse that they think can pump. I've not been approaching it that way. I've been approaching it with like, it could be, you know, it could be promising, but obviously very speculative and risky. And, you know, I put some into it or I might put a lot into something that's much more promising and much less risky and, you know, better backed, if you will, like by a team or investors or whatever. And we're seeing huge volatility in, in these things. And we're seeing things that can move a hundred, 200, 300% in a matter of days. And that makes trading setups that we get excited about in the crypto landscape and you can make serious money. You know, I've had my best run pretty much ever, uh, during this time. And I felt pretty late. Like I was, I don't think I made my first trade within like DeFi and Uniswap stuff until the end of July, maybe. Um, and in a couple of months had returns that I'm happy with for if it were a couple of years, um, even in crypto. So, there's tons of opportunity. So what I'd like to tell people is, Hey, pay attention, you know, mm-hmm. because we take risks by being investors in crypto. So the worst thing is to take risks of investing in crypto and then not pay attention to the stuff that's actually mattering. Yeah, no, I agree. It feels like 2017 all over again, when you sort of had that first mover advantage, like there were people around and there were people doing it, but it hadn't really quite hit yet. And you were still early enough that if you, if you took the time to educate yourself and get your system in place, you could really sort of hit a home run on this. And I, I do feel like we're there right now. I mean, like you said earlier on this podcast, retail isn't here yet. I mean, it's all just, sort of, we're still just kind of trading Ethereum with one another, the folks who have been around for a couple of years. But, you know, if, if this stuff really gains traction, you're going to see a lot of influx of capital. And that's when you can make your your money. Uh, I remember back in 2017, there was a podcast um, with Whale and Dale and those guys, and they had Ari Paul on. And he's like, the trading algorithms are coming. The institutional guys are coming. They're not here yet, but you have this sort of window where, you know, you're not going to get your lunch eaten by you, by algorithms and by sophisticated institutional investors. And then sure enough, it came and it was really hard to trade. 
And yeah. I feel like we're at that sort of really small window again right now in the DeFi phase. Yeah. And honestly, by the time they hit the centralized exchanges, it gets a lot harder. For sure. So when it's decentralized only, when it's harder to access, if you can find that, but also find liquidity, that's where there's a, a sweet spot. And then also in like protocol launches, understanding who's the, who has real technology with real upside, all that stuff is for sure where the opportunity lies. You mentioned that about retail not being here, man, for the first time in this whole cycle, uh, somehow crypto stuff came up when I was talking to my neighbor who <laughs> works in some fixed income strategy type stuff. He works in like insurance and stuff. And, you know, I thought he would find the conversation about yield, you know, finding high yield investments pretty interesting. And he did, but I was like, I don't know how to explain this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, he, and he has, he, he still owns like some Bitcoin and Ethereum and stuff from, you know, back in 2017, at some point in the cycle, he bought it and then just said, I'll come back in five years and look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had some awareness, but then I was thinking like, wait, he, I have to talk about like depositing Ethereum to MetaMask and I have right. to talk about these apps and I have to talk about yield and governance tokens and, um, weird names of places and hardware wallets. Like it's still tough. And Mm. even the conversations around it and saying like, yeah, you could do this thing. And it's like 150% APY. (laughs) (laughs) You just sound like an idiot after a bit. Like I need some practice talking to normal people about it because it's so absurd. It isn't easy. Yeah. I was like, maybe I can have like just an easy, straightforward podcast on DeFi. And like, I just don't think it's possible. I mean, it's like, well, how much time do you have? (laughs) Because you're right. Some of the stuff builds on prior knowledge. Like we're able to do it because we were around in 17 and we understand sort of how Ethereum works and how MetaMask works um, and how exchanges work. But without that level of understanding, it's hard to get to like the DEX level or the Uniswap yeah, level. Anybody that wants to participate, the very first thing you need to understand is the idea of non-custodial crypto, mm-hmm. as in you are your own custodianship of your tokens, meaning it's in your wallet, whether your wallet is MetaMask on a browser or if you have a hardware wallet that you interface with MetaMask on a browser, because then that's what you're going to use to interface with any of these protocols. And you have to learn that part before you can really dig in. Once that clicks though, you know, you come to a, come to terms with the fact that you take your Ethereum or your stable coins or whatever off of Coinbase or Gemini or wherever, and you send them to your wallet and then you know how to manage your, your funds on your hardware wallet or on your, uh, you know, desktop wallet, whatever, then you can kind of take the next step. But there is a learning curve. Like crypto mm-hmm. gets more and more complicated. And I've seen a lot of people that have been in the space a long time are like, yeah, this is way over my head now. This is, this is too much. Um, but if you, if you dig in, you'll be early enough to take part. And then as it gets easier, it'll get more uh, accessible. You know, it'll get more accessible over time, but the opportunities will start to be uh, taken out as well because the first mover advantage becomes gone. For sure. So I I probably have a hundred other questions I'd like to ask you, but I don't want to go too much over our time. I'm just sort of curious, you know, we talked about DeFi. What do you think about the broader thoughts on sort of the cryptocurrency market? I know we had kind of a a correction the last couple of days and you're seeing a pullback. Do you think that continues? Do you think we're going up? Like what, what do you think for the next couple of months? Uh, I think we have to, 
I think we're more correlated, at least between like Bitcoin and Ethereum, we're more correlated to legacy markets than we ever were before. We haven't talked much about Bitcoin today, mm -hmm. but Bitcoin is much more of a serious player in the macro investing landscape than it ever was before. I swear over the last year or two, even podcasts where the hosts did not like talking about Bitcoin, they'd have these institutional guests. And if they're talking about gold, they're also mentioning Bitcoin mm -hmm. because what a lot of them started figuring out is like, okay, well, if I have say, say my I'm a hundred percent gold allocated, well, it makes sense for like 10% of my gold allocation to go to Bitcoin instead, because freaking look at the performance over time uh, with similar concepts in terms of valuation and scarcity and all that stuff. And Bitcoin has become part of the macro narrative. It moves with, in, in low timeframes, it unfortunately moves a lot with like the stock market. It moves a lot with uh, the dollar, like DXY. Uh, and then it's fairly non-correlated in larger timeframes. And um, I don't know that like this will be the time we see inflation, but we have seen gold all-time highs. We are seeing in my mind, I think we're seeing inflation play out with these massive run-ups and things like the queues and real estate, real assets. Um, and I think that there's a, there's a chance that inflation kicks in and rears its head. And in that scenario, that makes me pretty darn bullish on Bitcoin. The other example, the other time I'm going to be really bullish on Bitcoin is just when we're in a really risk on environment and people are willing to spend money which we've of course seen with the stock market and you know what people do with their stimulus checks and that kind of stuff. So those are two of the scenarios where I'm super bullish. The one where I will maintain um, being not very bullish is where we have a contraction cycle. So like if you see, and I think the best indicator for that might be if like the big spike in the VIX and the meltdown we had in March, well, friggin' Bitcoin and crypto melted too. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not immune. We're not totally immune to that. We're, we're not immune to legacy market movements. My hope is just in the broad spectrum when things are normal-ish that Bitcoin does stay relatively decorrelated. And Bitcoin is still king despite all the DeFi stuff we've talked about. Uh, if Bitcoin goes down, it's going to affect all this DeFi stuff too. Sure, uh, sure. So macro i'm very bullish but i do think we have the same type of risks legacy does for instance like with the uncertainty of the u.s elections and whatever else i think whenever we have some certainty from the elections i expect the end of the year will be pretty bullish around uh, uh, for everything yeah no I, I agree with you i was going to mention the election too it seems like that's sort of just need to get it over with right, and right. carry on with life yeah for a lot of reasons bitcoin included yeah <laughs> um and i mean also the 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 micro strategy effect, right? Like all of what that corporation just converted yeah. $175 million of its balance sheet to Bitcoin. It's like, well, with other companies start following suit, you know, you could just have like a liquidity crisis on the Bitcoin side too. Oh, I think that that's a real, a real potential threat, especially in this scenario, if inflation kicks in, you know, foreign companies always have to deal with the idea that, their currency won't be worth as much and they won't be able to buy as much with it because of the impact of the global reserve currency or the dollar. U.S. companies are pretty spoiled. Like the dollar always has pretty good buying power. Um, but what happens if we do hit a point where the dollar's buying power is limited in some way? And there's more threats to that than there have been in many decades. Um, yeah. Yeah. Honestly, probably since we became the reserve currency after the world wars. And I think, 
I don't know, like, will people choose to put some of their treasury in, in something like Bitcoin? Maybe that's, that's your hyper moon event, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess I'll be here for it. Yeah. And I mean, I, the treasury printed what, $6 trillion this year or something. It's like, if inflation is going to happen, maybe it happens soon. I, I think there's no what, such thing as a fiscal conservative anymore. That's for sure. Right. I'm, so I'm, I'm going to have Joe Weisenthal on the show in a month or so. And I know he's taken like the absolute opposite end of this argument. So I'm going to explore this a little bit more with him. He says the dollar is actually um, in higher demand than we're accounting for. And we ought to print more money because the dollar is increasing relative to other global currencies. So, so it'll be interesting to hear his take on it. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe both can be true. I've heard the argument that you know, the dollar stinks, but everything else stinks worse. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Does Bitcoin stand out in that environment? Maybe so. Awesome. I don't think, I don't think Bitcoin is going to become, you know, the new reserve currency or anything. I'm not that, I'm not that type of person, but I think it can be a good investment and a yeah. good edge to mayhem. Right. Yeah. A store of value, digital gold, so to speak. Yeah. So uh, I guess to close, I, I had one question. It's more like a piece of advice I was hoping to get out of you. You, <laughs> a lot of people have described you as the nicest guy in crypto. Um, <laughs> and I was wondering if you could offer any sort of advice to me about how to be nicer to people. Just don't make fun of their food tags, boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll take that under advisement. I probably won't follow your advice, but... Um, you know what? I, I, I am thankful that people view me in that way. Sometimes, uh, I try to not burn bridges, you know, like a company or a person, they really have to burn me pretty bad for me to go rip roaring over them. Or I got to be out of my element, you know, like not in my, in my primary psyche of trying to take it easy and assume the best in people. But for the most part, I try to assume everybody's just trying to make it go by day by day and do their thing. So I try to treat them, even if they make me mad in some reason or another, like try to figure out where are they coming from with that and, and, you know, come to terms with it and not make too big of a fuss about anything. Just let it roll off your shoulders if it bothers you. <laughs> well, that's a heck of an attitude, Ledger. I'm going to try to take that, take that to heart. I won't, but I'm going to try. Life's too short for two fights. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe all right man well hey i i i really appreciate you coming on it was a great conversation and you know I'll, i might have you back again if if you'll have me to dig into some of these other things in more detail because i still have 100 questions but this was really really fun and i really appreciate your time i will talk to bully esquire any day of the week thanks for having me. all right man talk to you later hey everyone thanks for listening new episodes go live every wednesday at 7 a.m eastern Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.